Football on the Sports Social Podcast Network is brought to you by BetVictor, where new signings are guaranteed a great debut. Join and choose your welcome offer at betvictor.com. 18 plus, begambleaware.org. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away. Specifically, the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, welcome back to VAR at the Bar. This is episode 28. It's been a bit of a hiatus, but we are back. Uh, my name is Ant, and I'm joined with the usual suspects. Hello, I'm Dan. And I'm Chris. How are we? Yeah, I'm well, thank you very much. Hey, good, thank you. Had a little one since uh, we last recorded, so working on six hours sleep at the most these days. But oh, functioning, standard, getting by. I know, I know. <laughs> Good. So a lot has happened since we last did this. Um, our last podcast was recorded on the 12th of November, 2021. <laughs> Admittedly, it was only released a few weeks ago, but we'll brush over that. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've written some notes down on a few things that have happened since since our last podcast. So Solskjaer was still in charge of Man United last time we did a podcast. Uh, wow. Watford... <laughs> Watford have sacked Ranieri, Hodgson and Rob Edwards in that time. And probably by the time this gets edited, Slavin Bilic will probably be on his way out as well. <laughs> yeah. Sadio Mane left the Premier League. He's given the defences a rest. He's, uh, he's gone to Germany. And uh, obviously, a certain Mr Erling Haaland has graced our shores. I think we can all agree he's been a bit, bit of a flop so far, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah, I thought that massively. Don't know about you, Dan. Yeah, he's not done anything for my fantasy team so far this season. <laughs> You've got to put him in to start with, haven't you? No, he's in. He's been in from the start. Oh, OK. Speaking of flops, Alison Becker has assisted more goals than Jack Grealish since his move to City for 100 million. <laughs> That's a brilliant start. That's a great one. What about uh, Amorin? Has he assisted more or scored more than Jack Grealish? I think he probably has now, hasn't he? More than likely. After Definitely. what Jack really said about him. And uh, Nottingham Forest, obviously, back in the Premiership. It's great to have them back. First time since 1999. And they've spent a whopping £145 million on players. Yeah. Mind-boggling, isn't it? And they've had a great start to the season. <laughs> <laughs> that was a brief summary of what has, what has happened uh, 
since we last did this. And obviously Gerard's had an entire reign at Aston Villa. Yeah, come and gone. Just like that. <laughs> <laughs> so tonight we've got the top 10 returning players for another spell at the former club. The best of, I should say, the best players. Uh, I've got a little quiz for you. I've streamlined it a bit and I've added in some new rounds for you. Oh, you data. And we have a good, the bad, the obscure, which I've done as a late substitution for Dan. So plenty of talking for me tonight. To be fair, though, I've got to apologise because Dan's substituted for me. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Absolute I, mess, I'll isn't be it? Doing, I'll be doing a double double. You sound like the bloody Conservative Party. Yeah. <laughs> So how how do you think the season's going so far then? Get your opinions on it, since we haven't spoken for a year. Very surprised with Arsenal. I'll give, give him that. At Arsenal, they're very confident, don't they? They're mm. not going to fall away anytime soon. An interesting one. It's normally February they fall away, isn't it, Arsenal? Yeah, that's normally when Man City go on a run as well, isn't it? Yeah. Tottenham still seem to be third, even by playing very boring football. <laughs> but... Grinding out results here and there. Can't complain. Not surprised at Man City. Well, no. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm quite surprised with um, the the slowish start that Leicester's had. To you, Dan. Do you want to? Uh, do you want to have, have a say on Leicester, Dan? As a fan. Uh, yeah, go on then. Um, uh, <laughs> where to start? So some of the defending's been pretty poor some of the passive play letting we get crosses into the box it's been been very frustrating to watch uh, the effort's still there the players are still playing for Rogers, so that's that's something very positive still scoring a lot of goals uh, i think they might have turned the corner now they've got two wins under the belt so fingers crossed they'll be able to pick up points regularly and finish mid-table so we can aim for well yeah realistically i think so <laughs> They're going to let goals in all the way through the season. So, I think from mid-table to bottom, it's going to be very tight, isn't it? There's not going to be much difference. No, there's a lot of teams down there that are struggling at the moment. Your Wolves, your Leeds, your Everton's, Forest. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, one surprise has been Fulham. I think that they seem to be very well organised at the moment anyway, without any injuries. And Mitrovic is actually having a decent season in the Premier League. Which he's been trying, what is it, his third time looking now? At least, yeah. Yeah. I think Bournemouth are doing quite well. I suddenly looked at the table the other day and realised they're in the top 10. Yeah, they've picked up points. I've, from what I've seen of them, they've, they've not, not been that impressive, to be honest, but they've picked up points, to be fair. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. Definitely. You want to have a quick word on Liverpool, Chris? Well, it's been a very slow start, hasn't it? Um, got, I mean, I think VARs helped Liverpool a lot as well. Everton game and Newcastle as well. Uh, it so, showed signs with Man City obviously getting that win. Obviously, then and with West Ham last game that they didn't play particularly too well. And Nunes seems like he's starting to kick up the gears a bit and just have to wait and see. I think it's a bit too too late now to put us for top two but i think maybe a top three top four spot is definitely within reach 
but it's just getting consistency, isn't it? I think the loss of Mane's hurt hurt us a bit and injuries to go on top of that where Mane would play. I think also the squad's not getting any younger. I think no. I think last season perhaps took out on them a bit because we played sixty well, games, wasn't it? Every game available last season. So I think it's probably uh perhaps been a bit of a strain on some of the slightly older ones. Yeah, I think they could have looked at midfield maybe to strengthen up um, with a signing in the summer. I know they brought Arthur in, but that's useless, <laughs> isn't it, really? He's out for four months. It just seems like a total waste panic buy, to be honest, when they've had the whole summer to look at uh, look at that area and they've not, not seemed like it was an urgent area at the time. Yeah, I think hopefully they've realised now. <laughs> Roll on a nice January transfer for Jude Bellingham. That would do nicely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Right then, let's crack on. Let's do a top 10. It's been a while. How have you found this one? Yeah, it, when you first said this to us, I thought, oh, this is going to be, you know, dead easy. But it's then when you're looking into it and you've got to try and find whether they're actually successful with the second stint. <laughs> And what successful sort of means. <laughs> I mean, with some people, it's just to start a match, but <laughs> with others, you know. Yeah, that was it. It was really hard. I thought it was going to be easy to get started. Um, I got a list of lots of players together, but then I started trying to put them in order and looking at what the players actually did during the second spell. And then I started setting my own standards and it, it got harder and harder as I went along. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I found. So Yeah. In in the end, I've muddled ten together. Whether you agree with me or not, there's another matter. <laughs> when do we ever agree with each other? Come on. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no doubt we've all left someone off that someone else will kick up about, and you know, oh, yeah. So you mean someone I'll leave off that you two will kick up off? <laughs> That's normally the the normal route to go down. Not going to name names. No, not like that. I'm sure I will have forgot someone on this list because there were so many. Oh, yeah. A hell of a lot. Right, then. Christopher, let's get started on number 10, please. Uh, okay. So, my number 10 is Alvaro Recoba. That's okay. Inter Milan's own left-footed Uruguayan wizard. So, I'm talking about his time he returned to Nacional in 2011. Um, before that, he spent 12 seasons in Italy mainly with Inter Milan. In this stint, he spent four seasons there. Unfortunately, due to, due to him coming near the end of his career, they were quite injury hit at times, but Nacional tend to use him as an impact sub. Uh, he scored some very important goals in those times. In 2011, he scored the winning pen in the win over arch-rivals Panorao in the Uruguay Classico. And that was in stoppage time. He's also done um, a bit of a nifty trick with scoring from corners. He did that in 2012. And like I said, the other important goals were in another Uruguayan Classico, where he scored the winning goals from 30 yards away in stoppage time in 2014. At that time, he was 38. So in his stint, he scored 15 goals in four years and retired at the age of 40 in 2015. I just thought just because of the, his goals, he still scored even at an old age, 
and that they used him as an impact player, I just thought I'd just whack him into the top 10 because obviously he's a bit of a folk hero there. Okay, that's fair enough. I've got one a little bit similar to that later on. Yeah, I like that one. It reminded me actually of um, one of Ant's Good, the Bad, the Obscure entries, Jari Lippmanen, who uh, returned to one of his former clubs when he was aged 40 and volleyed in a, an equalising goal in a cup final. Yeah, yeah. I always thought he was um, very underrated at his time at Inter as well. And I just thought he, he was due a mention. I think he probably could have done better with his career, but obviously when you've got other players like Ronaldo and Christian Vieri there, it's probably very difficult to get a sniff in. Okay, uh, definitely not as um, out there as Chris's last entry, but I've gone for Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Oh, he's my number two. Oh, he's my number four, I think. Well, okay, I just remember remembered that I do this every time, don't I? I you <laughs> break do, your yeah. list <laughs> at the start. Yeah, it's normally been my number one, so <laughs> I've gone for number two this time. <laughs> Okay, well, um, I was going to keep it brief because it we've, we've talked about Zlatan before, but I definitely thought it was worth a mention that um, he uh, left Barcelona on loan to AC Milan in the 2010-2011 season, scored 14 goals in 29 appearances in the league, helped them lift the Serie A title. And that was the last title they won until he returned to AC Milan, uh, transferring from LA Galaxy in 2020. And it was the 21-22 season where he, they finally lifted the trophy. They scored 33 goals in 60 appearances in that spell. So no signs of slowing down with his goal scoring. He's popped up with some important goals as well. Um, for example, the 90th minute winner against Lazio that helped uh, Milan take top spot in Syria in April as the season was coming to a close. So... Eight goals in 23 games in the season that they did lift the title again. So definitely had a big impact there. Yeah. Sure, you've got more to say about it, though, if it's uh, your number two, Chris. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, Dan's just gone through um, the initial bits with it. But he sort of moved to M Milan, in my opinion, due to they at that time, they sort of lacked a leader style of play. And they had sort of serious issues at scoring goals. Um, that's the season he joined. They only scored 15 goals and 11 of them were um, by defenders and midfielders. Um, he, he made his full debut against Calgary and proceeded to score them. Um, there's a further three goals in the next eight games, which helped Milan get sixth in the league for that season. Um, Zatan's personal tally was actually 10 goals in 18 games. He was initially only um, signed on a six-month contract, but he was extended for another year. And with him being there, they actually changed like their transfer policy. So instead of getting more experienced players, they decided to then go for younger players, really, especially in the attacking areas that Zatan could then almost mentor. And then they saw drastic improvements where they finished second, just behind rivals Inter. Um, that season, he actually got um, 
from his 19 appearances, he scored 15 goals. Um, but like you said, he broke many records last season. Like uh, for, because being someone actually at 40 years old to score a brace in Serie A, uh, also um, being the third person in the 21st century to achieve 300 league league career goals across the top five European leagues. And I just think that um, with him going in, he seems to have matured as well. He's now, instead of doing being the product of just Satan himself, he's now been more of a team player on and off the pitch. It shows because he, he actually said that for um, six months, he was playing with an ACL injury last season. And he's actually now still injured now. Um, due back sort of net, the end of next year, which he'll be 42. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's why I put him at number two. I just think he, he's, he's sort of given them the Scudetto for the first time in 11 years, but he's actually become more of a mature player with it as well. And I think it's like personal growth as well as just the team. You've literally covered everything I have on him. So, uh, yeah, he, he was my number four for very similar reasons that he sort of he came back and became a leader like you said and led this young young AC team to the title yeah yeah and really helped some of the players there and I think they'll go on to you know probably better things as well because of it focus in the eyes of Zlatan Ibrahimovic nervous whistles from the crowd Ibrahimovic strikes oh. it brilliantly back his 400th domestic league goal of a glittering career super strike 1-0 Milan right my number 10 is uh, Janinho to Middlesbrough okay uh, I mean obviously we all know it was a massive shock when he first signed for them back in 97 um, he went on to score, I think it was like 17 goals in 74 games for them. He then went off to Atletico Madrid. Um, whilst he was there, he suffered a bit with injuries and obviously never quite achieved the heights that were expected of him. So he got loaned back to Middlesbrough in 99-2000 season, scored four goals on his return. And then by the time he went back to Atletico Madrid, they had been uh, relegated to the Spanish second division. So he, he then went back to Middlesbrough for a third spell. Uh, I think it was about six million he went for. Uh, he spent two years back at Middlesbrough and he helped them to win their only major honour, which was the 0304 League Cup. And um, he ended up winning, I think he was voted Borough fans' greatest ever player uh, that season. And he's just been seen as like a hero of Middlesbrough ever since. And I know he had a Perhaps his second and third spell wasn't quite as good as his first spell, but I think to for a player of his calibre to go back or to go there in the first place was incredible. To go back twice and, you know, just be regarded as an absolute legend of this, no offence to Middlesbrough, relatively small, smaller northern club. Um, that's why I've put him in number 10. No, I think that's a very good synopsis there, mate, to be honest. Yeah. I can't really say any more with that. It's just, I think, 
with the Premier League at that time, it was still quite in its infancy, wasn't it? And suddenly this Brazilian guy that's just, you know, like a little Maradona-esque player doing what he was doing week in, week out. It's sort of like, wow. <laughs> I know there's like Gianfranco Zola there, but just to, like say to go to someone like Middlesbrough as well, who I think just got promoted, didn't they? Like yeah, said. Did, yeah. Okay. Uh, Chris. Yep. I haven't heard your voice for a while. No, I know. <laughs> I know I've got to start uh, saying more, haven't I? <laughs> uh, my number nine is Robin Van Persie. He's been yeah. used on one of my lists before, um, but this one is for his return to Feyenoord in January 2018. So he he actually cancelled his contract with Fanabache to go there. And Feyenoord was his hometown team. He played there between 2001 and 2004. As we've, like we said with Abrahamovic, he was signed there more of a mentor for the younger players at the time. And he, um, at the beginning, was used more as an impact sub and in some cases even played as an attacking midfielder. Like I said, he joined in January, so his game time was slightly limited, where he scored still five goals in 12 games. He actually announced his retirement at the beginning of the next season, but it still broke through into the first team, became a regular, scoring 16 goals in 25 games. Again, another one to break into his 300th career goal. And then he retired at the age of 36. That's all I've really got for him, to be honest. I just think that it's just a nice way homecoming for him. And he just showed he's still a class act. I know the era de Vise isn't as, you know, high up as the Premier League, but I still think a, a sort of a, a goal, um, the goals of 16 in 25 is still a very good quota to have. And from not always playing up front as well as an attacking mid is, I think, a really good record. I mean, he's a out-and-out born goal scorer, wasn't he? So, you know, he's an incredible finisher, as we've spoken about previously. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he wasn't blessed with a lot of athleticism, but he always had that flair, didn't he? And uh, he just knew he was going to carry on playing into his sort of late 30s if he, if he wanted to. So, yeah, I'm not surprised he went back and had a successful stint. OK, then, Dan, what's your number nine? All right, my number nine is Ian Rush. Did you either of you go for him? I was thought about it, but I didn't. No, he was considered. Um, I'll explain why afterwards. Spoiler okay. alert. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, uh, he would have been a bit higher on my list had his return to Liverpool been in an era where they were a bit more successful. But um, as it were, um, he was obviously very successful in the early to mid-80s with Liverpool. And uh, at that point, he was one of the top goal scorers in Europe. And he was uh, signed up by Juventus for the 87-88 season. 
Now, they bought him for £3.2 million, which was a hefty fee back then. But uh, he struggled to settle and he was often cited as being homesick. And he moved back to Liverpool for the 88-89 season for £2.7 million. Uh, by this point, they'd already um, found replacements, though, with John Aldridge and Peter Beardsley. Initially, he was on the bench behind them, but he uh, fought his way back into the team and uh, he actually became Liverpool's top scorer in the 1991, 92, 93, 93-94 seasons. Uh, but he had success as well. He um, helped them win the first division in the 89-90 season. And he won the FA Cup in the 88-89, 91-92 season and the League Cup in 94-95 season. So that's all trophies that he won with them after his return in his second stint. And he made over 180 appearances and scored over 60 goals as well. So, yeah, I thought that was a pretty good return. Yeah, no, he summed up nicely. Just a class act, wasn't he, really? And the way you said that he fought his way back into the team as well, you wouldn't expect anything else from him, really. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and he was a, such, a, such a good model professional, wasn't he? I only left him off because he was only gone for, what, 10 months or something? I didn't really feel like a didn't really feel like a return, if you know what I mean. Just felt like he was on sabbatical. But you're absolutely well, right what you said. You, yeah, you know, I mean, he was definitely considered. But that was, that was the sole reason I couldn't really put him in. But you're certainly not wrong. Fair enough. Uh, oh, it's me again. Sticking with Feyenoord, my number nine is Dirk Kout. Shame I didn't come after you, Chris. It could have been a nice little segue there. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got much on this, so I'll keep it short and sweet. Um, he had a three-year spell with uh, uh, Feyenoord um, before he got snapped up by Liverpool in 2006. And we all know what a great player he was for Liverpool over the years. And then after six years with Liverpool, he left them and went for Briefsville in Turkey. He then returned to Feyenoord at the end of his career. And much like Van Persie, still had a knack for scoring goals. Um, and he fired them to their first uh, Eredivisie since 1999. And in his second and final season, he scored a hat-trick on the final day to clinch the 2016-17 title. Um, and that's pretty much all I have on him. Short and sweet one. It's very impressive still. Yeah, that wasn't on my radar at all. I like that one. Yeah, very good, mate. Very good one. And we are back to Chris. Okay, now here's my first curveball. Oh, God, here we go. <laughs> Pogba. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might be you're quite close. Um, Paul Scholes. Okay. So he, he retired from Man U in 2011 to join the coaching staff at Manchester United. Um, there were a lot of injuries that season for Man U, especially to their first team starters in midfield. Tom Cleverley and Anderson were um, out long term, so they had to try and find quality for the first team and were desperate to do this. At that time, Scholes wasn't actually particularly enjoying his time coaching, so he actually f- approached Fergie for a comeback. And even though with the six months out of the game, he think he could make a difference for the team, even at the age of 36. 
at that time, a bit of background, that Man U were actually on a two-game losing streak. They lost at home to Blackburn and away at Newcastle. And then their next match was an FA Cup match against their ter- title rivals at the time, Man City. So um, what Fergie and Scholes decided to do was actually keep it quite quiet about him coming back. So he still continued to do all the training sessions. And he even, there's a story that he even had to sneak out to buy a pair of boots to use for match day. So obviously you come coming up to the third round of the FA Cup, and then to everyone's shock, on the team sheet as a sub, there's the Scolzi. And uh, he came on for the last 15 minutes of that game. It was actually a 3-2 away win. They were actually 3-0 up at the time as well, almost threw it away. Um, but then the following game against Bolton, Scholes actually scored on the stroke of half time in the first goal in a 3-0 win. He became a regular at club and but they just fell short of winning the title, as we all know, the Aguero moment. Um, He scored uh, four goals in 21 appearances, and that gave him an extension. Um, The following season, he made his 700th appearance for Man U against Wigan in a 4-0 win, and his last appearance was um, in that same game and he promptly got booked <laughs> for the 97th time in his career. So in May 2013, he decided to then call it a day properly and hang up his boots. That's all I got for it. I remember the story of him going down Sports Direct to get a pair of 50 pound boots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just thought it was quite a, a nice story, like on how, like you say, kept it all quiet and on the sly. But I mean, if you looked at the teams that Man U were, play, were playing, you know, with, they were in a real injury crisis at the time. And I think they had Lindergaard in goal due to De Gea being off form and all sorts of weird and wonderful players being being used out of position. I think they had Giggs as well still playing at the age of forty on the left. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Dan. Okay. Number eight, I've gone for Iago Aspas. Oh, uh, didn't think about him. I didn't. That's a really good one there, mate. So, yeah, started off his career with Celta Vigo in 2008. And it was uh, in the 2012, he actually fired them to promotion to La Liga after scoring 23 goals. Uh, the following season, they then scored 12 goals to help them survive in that first season in La Liga, uh, which he scored on the last day of the season to help them stay up. And that was the point where Liverpool stepped in and a £7 million transfer followed and he was given the number nine shirt at Anfield. But uh, obviously, as we know, he struggled. He uh, made 14 appearances and didn't manage a league goal, although I think he did score in the FA Cup against a lower league team. But uh, apparently he struggled with the English language and uh, it was in the pecking order behind Suarez, Sturridge, Sterling and Coutinho. So he didn't get a whole lot of opportunities. It was in the um, following season he went on loan to Seville. He only managed two goals in 16 games for them, but um, they made his loan move permanent. And then on the same day, they sold him to Celta Vigo for £5 million. 
So strange dealings there. But he ended up back in Celta uh, from 2015, and he's still playing there now. Uh, since then, he's made 245 appearances for Celta in his second run, with 127 league goals in La Liga. So as in 2017, he scored 19 league goals and won the Zara Trophy, which is the trophy for the highest scoring Spanish player in La Liga. And he won it again the following season with 22 goals. Uh, 2020, he reached 150 goals for Celta and scored his 100th uh, La Liga goal. And uh, he managed that in 209 games. And since the Spanish Civil War, only four players have achieved that 100 goal mark quicker. He was part of the 2018 Spanish World Cup squad. Which it was unthinkable that from those days as a Liverpool player, he'd end up playing for Spain. But he uh, made it to the World Cup and um, he actually scored a last-minute uh, equaliser against Morocco, salvage a 2-2 draw. In the 21-22 season, he was aged 35 and he again scored 18 La Liga goals in 37 games. So he's just not showing any signs of slowing down. So it's just a hugely successful second stint for Celta. That's a good one. Completely didn't see that at all. Unfortunately, he'll forever be remembered as the uh, man who took the most pathetic corner I've ever seen in a Liverpool game. (laughs) We're chasing the game against Chelsea, trying to win the title. That'll be on his tombstone when he's older. All right, my number eight is Didier Drogba, Chelsea. Okay. Um, I mean, obviously, I don't need to talk about his first spell at Chelsea, do I? Because he was an absolute legend there. And he left Chelsea to go to China. But I will say, his first spell ended, it was almost like the fairy tale ending for him, really. Because obviously, they won the Champions League. He scored the winning goal, I think. And then, like I said, he left, he went to China. And then in 2014-2015, Jose Mourinho decided to get the band back together. So he re-signed Drogba. And Drogba said he, he, there was an opportunity he couldn't turn down. And he made his uh, Premier League return for Chelsea in a 3-1 win away to Burnley. Um, and then on the 17th of September, he made his first start of his second spell in a one-all draw against Schalke. He then scored his first goal of his second spell at Stamford Bridge in October, converting a penalty kick and a 6-0 win over Maribor in Champions League. Five days later, Chelsea went off to Old Trafford, um, pretty depleted with injuries. No no Diego Costa, no like Remy. And Drogba actually made the starting lineup. And it was his 350th appearance for the club. And early in the second half, he headed Chelsea in front. Um, unfortunately, Robin van Persie equalised um, in added time. Chelsea won the league that year, I should point out, in 2015. And Drogba announced that it would be his final Chelsea game would be against Sunderland. And he started as captain. And he was substituted with an injury with half an hour uh, after half an hour. And he was uh, carried off by his teammates on the shoulders. And I just thought, you know, like I said, it was... He, I want to take out Lampard and Terry. He was Mr. Chelsea, really. And to come back and to win to win Chelsea the title, you know, 
again, it's a bit like Janino. He came back, he was still a hero, didn't outstay his welcome, and that was it. That's why I decided to put him in. You can't argue with a title win. Yeah. Definitely. I'm all about hero. <laughs> <laughs> Love a hero. Chelsea are making a change. I don't know whether this was preordained. It quite possibly was. So that Didier Drogba could walk out with the armband. All the signs are that, yes, this has been choreographed. And why wouldn't it be? His opponents on the day, his colleagues on the day, and those who have worshipped him from the stand are being permitted a moment to say goodbye. Didier Drogba, Chelsea legend. Uh, Chris, what have you got for us at number seven? Yeah, I've got Romario. Okay. Um, He's my number three. Is he? Okay. We'll wait for that one then, mate. I didn't have him at all. (laughs) Okay. Over to you then, Dan. All right. Let's see if you've heard of a guy that joined Derby County age 17 in 1891. I told you, Chris, didn't I? Hear that? You know, from the the olden days. <laughs> I need to fill up my drink. <laughs> uh, my got number a book seven. on this one. No, I've not got a book on this one. <laughs> no. So my number seven is Steve Bloomer. He uh, originally left school and was a blacksmith, but then he joined the non-league Derby team, and then they actually merged with Derby County, so he became a Derby County player, age seventeen, eighteen ninety-one. Uh, he also joined Derby Baseball Club in 1893, and he won the English Cup with them in 1895, 97, and 98, playing at first base. Uh, but Derby County moved to the baseball ground in 1895, and Bloomer scored the first goals on the ground with a 2 0 win over Sunderland. And he played with Derby until 1906 and was their top goal scorer on 12 consecutive seasons. And then while at Derby, he was the top goal scorer in the first division on five occasions in 1896, 97, 99, 1901 and 1904. So in his first stint with Derby, he played 375 games and scored 238 goals. And then he was transferred to Middlesbrough for a fee of £750. And he played five seasons with them and scored 59 league goals in 125 games. And then he rejoined Derby in 1910. And he was their top goal scorer for another two seasons, and he helped them get back into the first division. Uh, he retired in 1914, aged 40, and he'd scored 352 league goals over the course of his career. So the reason I put him on this list, really, is because he got 53 league goals in that second stint with Derby. And it made him one of only 11 players in history to score over 300 league goals in England. And he currently stands at the fourth all-time leading goal scorer in England. And his legacy is still remembered today as the anthem Steve Bloomer's watching is played at every Derby home game. And there's a bust of him at Pride Park. And he's also listed in the, the Football League 100 Legends and is in the English Football Hall of Fame. Uh, he was capped 23 times for England and scored 28 goals. And um, I've got a little side story on him as well. 
So after he retired as a player, he went to coach in Germany, a team called Britannia Berlin 92. But um, his timing was pretty bad because this was in 1914 and three weeks after he arrived, World War I began. He tried to leave the country, but he was actually arrested and imprisoned. And in a prison camp, uh, football and cricket turned out to be quite popular activities and actually drew crowds of up to a thousand people. So a football cup competition was organised and Bloomer captained his team to victory. And he also set the camp batting record with an innings of 204 and best bowling figures of 6 for 15. <laughs> they even staged an Olympic event and Bloomer went on to win the old age handicap 75 metre sprint with a time of 9.6 seconds. And when he was finally released from the camp in 1918, a football match was staged in his honour. How have they not made a film of this guy? <laughs> I don't know. I'm surprised you didn't have him on the good, bad, obscure. I was going to say, this is why Dan hasn't got a good, the bad, obscure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a great one, though, Dan. Yeah. I, I pray to God I, I, that your other six are up to that standard, then. <laughs> Not quite as obscure as this one. No, that's great. Well done with that. One for the Derby fans, definitely there. Yeah, definitely. Our history's full of legends and football played on high. Rach Carter, Peter Doherty, oh, you should have seen them fly. Now we all just love football, but will we lift the crown? The noise goes up, the rams come out onto their hallowed ground. Steve Bloomer's watching, helping them fight, guiding our heroes in the black and the white. All teams who come here, there's Right, my number seven. Um, another hero's return for me. Robbie Fowler, Liverpool. Okay. Not at all predictable there, Ant. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we all know he's God at Liverpool. Um, he scored 120-odd goals and 236 appearances, but he left He left Anfield in 2001 under perhaps a, a little bit of a black cloud because he fell out with Gerard Houllier. Um and he ended up going to Leeds, which he wasn't very happy about. But anyway, he went to Leeds, he went to Manchester City, and then in January 2006, Rafa Benitez brought him back. And um, I, I remember myself being actually over the moon with it. You know, apparently there was uh, large banners at the game, his first game back, which was Birmingham, um, saying, you know, God's back in the house and all this. And, um, it was just the stuff of fairy tales, especially for Fowler. He said uh, he said he was like a kid waking up on Christmas morning every day. And his first appearance back at Anfield was a substitute uh, appearance against Birmingham, and he received a standing ovation. Um, following his return, he had three goals ruled out for offside before he finally got off the mark in March 2006 in the home game against Fulham, 
which ironically was the same opponents in which he scored his first Liverpool goal 13 years earlier. And then his next Liverpool goal, which was against West Brom, he overtook Kenny Dalglish in the club's all-time top scorers. And his um, return resurgence continued. He marked his 31st birthday with a goal against Bolton Wanderers. And he made it four goals in five games when he scored against Blackburn Rovers. And he was just, he was banging in more goals than the, the actual, you know, the main strikers of Liverpool at the time, which I think were Cissé and Morientes, maybe Crouch. And Rafa commented on Fowler's work and progress. And he said, to buy a Robbie Fowler who is fit and scoring goals would cost a lot, maybe 10 million or more. And, you know, they got him back for free. And, um, yeah, he went on to win... Uh, he went on to win the FA Cup in 2006 and he also got a Champions League runners-up medal in 2007. And, yeah, by the end of it, he was, um, I think he scored 183 goals in 369 appearances overall for Liverpool. And I, I put him on because, you know, like the, the way he left, he, he, he deserved a better ending to his Liverpool career. And obviously he didn't get loads of silverware on his return, but at least he got something. No, yeah, I think you you've argued that quite well. To be honest, when you first said Fowler, I thought, Oof, not sure about that. But no, I what did he win? <laughs> <laughs> no, fair enough. I know he's much loved in Liverpool, so I knew he was going to be on your list. Liverpool bias and all that. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's my only other Liverpool. I think he's my only Liverpool player. Yes, he is. Go on then, Chris. We're back to you. Okay. Um, Teddy Sheringham. Okay. No? Okay. So, Teddy moved to Spurs from Man United on a free back in 2001. At that time, Alex Ferguson um, didn't really want him to, to leave due to the, he wanted his experience as a more of a squad player. Because at that time, he was 35 years old. Um, under the manager at Spurs, then was Glenn Hoddle. Teddy helped them to the highest league position in six years of ninth, reaching their first final, which was the League Cup, which they lost to Blackburn in. That season, he was the top scorer for Spurs with 13 goals. That was level with Gus Poirier. Following season, Spurs finished ninth. Again, Sheringham was joint top scorer for Spurs, this time with the new signing, Robbie Keane. Sheringham decided to opt out of signing a new contract with Spurs to join Portsmouth on a free. Um, and then he was actually inducted into the Spurs Hall of Fame in 2008. So I thought his continual consistency throughout his whole career and then, obviously, at that sort of age, still to pop in 13 league goals two seasons straight, I think it's quite impressive. 
to a mid sort of at that time a mid mid table Spurs team. Yeah, you can't deny his influence on the team. He was a he was a big player, wasn't he? Yeah. That reminds me, I saw a um where did I put it? Hang on. I saw a quote on Teddy Sheringham. I didn't put him in my list, but I wrote this quote down. So it's a little known fact that Teddy Sheringham has been in his thirties since birth. He was in his 30s at Euro 96. He was in his 30s when he first left Tottenham. He was in his 30s when he won the treble with Manchester United. He was in his 30s when he was named Footballer of the Year. He was in his 30s when he rejoined Tottenham. He was in his 30s when he won promotion with West Ham. Teddy Sheringham is in his 30s. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I like that. He has always been in his 30s. That's what they do say, don't they? And here comes Teddy Sheringham in his 30s. Right, we're on to my number six. You sure are, I think. Yep. All right, I've gone for Mark Hughes. He was my number five, I believe. He's my number one. Oh, all right. Better save that one for you then, Chris. Well, thank you. All right, my number six, and I promise it's the last of the heroes welcomes. Um, <laughs> but he's, he's, he's another old favourite of mine. I've gone with uh, Sir Stanley Matthews. <laughs> He was considered, but I knew you were going to take it. <laughs> yeah, same here. <laughs> so he joined Stoke in 1932. Uh, he went on to spend 15 years with Stoke and he became an England, England international. But obviously, unfortunately, from the war, interrupted his career from the age of 24 to 30. Um, and by the time football restarted in 1946, he requested a transfer to Blackpool he'd moved to the area during his RAF service. He liked it. So he made the switch at the, at the age of 32. Um, there were always going to be questions as to how long he would remain at Blackpool. Um, but he remained there until 1961. He won the FA Cup um, and in 1953. And then 1956, he obviously won the first Ballon d'Or. And then 19, October 1961, at the age of 46, he returned to Stoke, who were in the second division, saying, I wouldn't sign for any other club. I don't see why I can't go on a season or two. I still get butterflies before a match. And when I play at the Victoria ground again, there'll be a swarm inside me. And his return saw 35,000 fans pack into the ground, which is four times more than the club's average. And he put on a dazzling display and he inspired a 3-0 win over Huddersfield. In 1962-1963, he was voted the uh, FWA Footballer of the Year as Stoke secured promotion back to the top flight. And then in his final year as a professional in 1965, he was knighted for services to football. And, you know, we talk about Robbie Fowler coming back to Liverpool, but Stanley Matthews is Stoke's god, so that's why I've put him on my list. No, that's that's a great one. That is the um, 
the quality of football that came with his return and the the award for the football writers player of the year as well right at the end of his career that is a spectacular return uh right so number five for chris yeah i've got mr peter beardsley oh he was uh, he was considered was he considered good good yeah i mean obviously uh this is his tenure at uh, newcastle he had his first in from 83 to 87 and then he decided to then obviously move to liverpool with huge success and then to everton and then uh, in 1993 he then joined newcastle for the second time at this time it was managed by kevin keegan who he actually played with first time he was there and the fee was 1.5 million and that was in july 1993 and he was 32 at the time um, in his first season at newcastle they finished impressive third place and he scored um, a total of 24 goals assisting 10. he was also in the pfa team of the year as well at newcastle is part of the entertainer side it displayed talents alongside andy cole les ferdinand david Ginola, and alan shearer which would make a truly remarkable strike force bisley is recognized by many as one of the best players to ever pulled on the newcastle shirt and he scored 58 goals in 162 appearances for newcastle including hat-tricks against man city sunderland and wimbledon his international career during this time actually sort started back up again he was recalled by the manager at the time terry venables in early 94 after an absence of three years ultimately ended in whilst he was still at newcastle in 1996 when he was one of the three players dropped for the euro 96 squad he eventually left Newcastle for a second time in the 18th of August, joining Bolton Wanderers for 450k. That's all I got for him, really. But as a player, it was great to watch, though, wasn't he? And that first season, him and Cole just ripping up the the Premier League, just unbelievable stats that they had. Yeah, he was an incredible player. Played for a lot of good clubs as well. Mm. Yeah, he's an entertaining player. That was a good pick. I like that one. Mm. Uh, right then, so we are on to Dan's number five. Right, my number five is Martin Keown. Okay. So he started out his career with Arsenal in 1984, and he made uh, just 22 appearances for them between 84 and 86. And um, he wanted to stay with the club, but um, George Graham would only offer him a wage that was £50 less than what he'd asked for. So in the end, he had to leave on a matter of principle, even though he didn't want to. Uh, he, he joined... Um, 50 quid was a lot, a lot of money back then, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's just, it's just the matter of principle. No, it's, it's Martin <laughs> I, know. I know, just because you know, you know what he's like as a, as a pundit. I know. I don't, I don't think George Graham fought too hard to keep him uh, at the time. But um, yeah, for £125,000, he moved to Aston Villa. And uh, under Graham Taylor, he helped them get promoted to the first division. 
It was then signed up in 1989 by Everton for £750,000. And they had uh, two mid-table finishes in the top flight. Until 1993, he rejoined Arsenal for £2 million. So a bad bit of business there for Arsenal. But um, he, he joined Arsenal and formed one of the most iconic defences of the 1990s, arguably speaking, alongside the likes of Tony Adams, Steve Bold, Knights of Winterburn and Lee Dixon. And it was a uh, 93-94 season. He won his first piece of silverware, the Cup Winners' Cup. We had a couple of uh, bad spells during the 90s with the likes of Bruce Rioch and Stuart Houston at the rain. But um, in 1997-98, under a certain Arsene Wenger, they won the FA Cup and Premier League double. And then they uh, achieved the same feat again in the 2001-2002 season, FA Cup and Premier League double. And then Keane also won the 2003 FA Cup and the 2004 Premier League title with them. So 310 appearances later with his second stint, and he's, uh, you have to call that one of the most successful returns you can have. <laughs> I actually completely forgot all about him, to be honest. I actually, yeah, exactly the same. I forgot he actually was at Arsenal before we knew him at Arsenal, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> but no, yeah, you can't sure. argue with his achievements. No, not at all. No, he's a good defender as well. Solid. Yeah, I really like watching him play, actually. Really good. Okay, my number five is Mark Hughes, which we've uh, parked until later. So, we're back to you, Chris. Oh, blooming heck. Okay, my number four. Okay, now this is a bit of a wild card one. But has anyone heard of Raymond Copper? Yes. <laughs> Vaguely, and I don't is he a know French why. player, Real Madrid. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Is he on your list at all, Dan? He's not on my list. Did he win a Ballon d'Or as well? He was. Well, I'll, I'll tell you a bit about him. Go on. Go on, mate. Okay. <laughs> so this is his stint he had at Rem. So he was there between 1951 and 56, and during a, a European Cup final against Real. Um, he, he then got sort of poached by them and, and signed for Real Madrid in 56-59. And uh, he then actually came runner-up in the Ballon d'Or in 1958. And he was third place in 1959 as well. Um, so eventually he moved back to Rem in 1959 to join fellow French um international juice fontaine so on his first season back he scored 14 goals in 36 appearances uh, it earned him the title of the best player in the competition and sixth place in the ballon d'or rem also won the league then but then the following season they actually um, failed in sort of regaining the title holding on to it and they also fell in the last 16 of the Euro european cup against burnley in 1960, he won French Player of the Year. And then the following season was the last French League Championship, Copper One. Well, when we were level on points with RC Paris, they triumphed thanks to a goal difference better than their opponents. That season was a bit of a, a quiet one for him because he only scored two goals. He was very much less successful the following year, scoring only one goal. 
but Rem again finished second behind Monaco. Um, for Copper's side, the 63-64 season was an absolute disaster. They actually finished second last with a poised attack of the tournament and relegated to Division 2. Um, Copper was offered uh, um, offers by Division 1 teams to join them, but he refused and wanted to get Rem up and get them promoted, which he did on the second attempt in 1966. On 1967, he actually retired from football at the age of 35. Regarding his relegation, he said he felt he felt like a deserter if he didn't want to try and get them promoted back up. He actually had quite a ordeal with the French uh, international team as well. He had various bans. Um, he actually did said something on a newspaper article in July 1963 stating that the professional footballer is the only man who can be bought and sold without his consent like a slave. He then received another ban when he refused to play for France against Bulgaria that October after a dispute. The French national manager also publicly criticised him for not joining the squad for a week's training session. He actually then backtracked after giving Copper leave the reason for that was that Copper's, Copper was caring for his son who tragically died of cancer, aged just four. So obviously due to all these other um, fantastic uh, honours he had, obviously international, he actually won the, um, the Champions League three, three times on the trot of Real Madrid. He won the La Liga as well. He also won Division One the first time around twice. Um, I just think he's a. He came back and he just did exactly the same again, more or less. And then he stayed at a club that got relegated as well when wanted to get them back up. So that was my wild card. I didn't really say it was a wild card. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. I think um, all that's really well justified. Um, definitely worthy of being high up the list. It's a good one, mate. Thank you. Uh, where are we, Dan? Is it your number? Uh, number, number four, four. Number four sorry, yeah. My number four is Carlos Tevez. Okay. A Boca. Yes. A Boca. So, yes, um, just to give a bit of context, he won the 2003 Primera Division and the Copa Libertadores with Boca before moving on to um, the great heights of Corinthians and West Ham. But um, later on in his career... Uh, with Juventus in 2013 to 2015, coming towards the end of that spell in 2015, he won Serie A and the Coppa Italia at the end of that season. And he decided he wanted to uh, return to Boca and help them to lift the, uh, the Premier Division title again. Uh, he had a large impact joining uh, for the second half of that season, scoring nine goals in 15 games. And he helped them to win the Argentine Cup as well. And in doing that, he became the first footballer to win two domestic league and cup doubles in the same calendar year, following success with Juventus. He uh, had a spell at Shanghai before returning to Boca again and helped them win the Premier Division in 2017-2018 and 2019-2020 as well. 
So um, I just thought for that record that he set, that was quite an epic return. I don't think there's anything that's quite as um, decorated as that to win the Italian League, the Italian Cup, the Argentine League and the Argentine Cup in the space of 12 months. That's incredible. <laughs> no. Yeah, it's a good pick. No, very good. Uh, my number four was Latan Ibrahimovic, which we've already spoken about. So I'm going to break the chain and I'm going to put my number three forward because I haven't spoken for a while. Okay. Okay, that's fine by me. So my number three is Diego Milito. Oh, okay, yeah, Argentinian striker. I put him this high up because he had two second spells at two different clubs, and they're both fairly successful. Um, so he started at racing in Argentina. Um, funnily enough, whilst his brother Gabriel played for the rivals um, Independiente, and uh, while wide, widely believed that Diego would go on to bigger and better things abroad. And obviously, it wasn't long before um, Genoa signed him for eight million. He had two successful seasons there, and he scored thirty-three goals in fifty-nine matches. Um, but he was forced to leave due to relegation um, because they got done for match fixing. So he went off to Zaragoza, and where he joined his brother, and he continued scoring. He, he became club captain, and in two thousand and eight, he returned to Genoa who had clawed their way back up and Zaragoza had subsequently been relegated. And he said he specifically wanted to go there, despite various competition from loads of big clubs around Europe. And he ended up scoring 24 goals and 34 appearances on his return there, coming second only to Ibrahimovic. Uh, off he went to Inter Milan for nine year, uh, five years, sorry, in 2009, and he scored 62 times in 128 appearances. But then in 2014, it was confirmed he was to return to racing, where it all began. And uh, despite being injury-prone and older, he still racked up 18 goals in 52 appearances over two seasons and helped racing to win their first title since 2001, which he'd been a part of back then, when it was their first title since 1966. Uh, nice bit of symmetry. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, that's uh, pretty much all I have on him. No, it's a, it's a double double stint, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's double good. whammy, double whammy. Yeah, very good one. Cambiasso, forse con la spinta su Ambrosini, poi Panda che gira subito, si infila nello spazio Milito, riesce a prendere il pallone Milito, 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 Principe Milito, 1-0, sempre Milito, 13 gol nel campionato. Right then, uh, Chris, number three, please. Yeah, I've got Santi Cazorla. Ah, he's my number one. Is he? Okay, we'll save that one then. 
What about you, Dan? Is he on your list? He's not. Okay. I was hoping no one would have him. (laughs) It's the hero's theme, mate, you know? (laughs) All right, so Dan, you've got Romario at number three, am I right? You're right, yes, Romario. This is Chris's number seven. That's correct, yeah. Ah, I've been listening. Very good. So um, Romario started his career with Rasta de Gama in 1985. And it was in 1988 Olympics, he really made his name by being the top goal scorer. And that got him his move to Europe with PSV. Uh, with them, he scored 98 goals in 110 games in the league. And then he moved on to Barcelona and was part of the, the dream team, the likes of Stoichkov and Michael Laudrup. He also won the Ballon d'Or in 1994. Uh, but then in 1995, he uh, fell out with Johan Cruyff, um, one of many players that did. And um, he moved back to Brazil and joined Flamengo. Uh, he had a pretty quiet spell by his standards with eight goals in 19 games and moved to back to Europe with Valencia. But then he fell out with the coach there, Luis Aragones, and he went back on loan to Flamengo. So that's his first uh, second stint. He just got three goals in four games towards the end of the 97 season. Uh, But he joined permanently and he got uh, 26 goals in 39 games in the 98-99 season. So very prolific. But then he took the opportunity to rejoin his first club, Vasto de Duama. And he got 41 goals in 46 games, forming a prolific partnership with uh, former national team striker Edmundo. And he was the Brazilian league goalscorer for the third time. Uh, age 34 by this point, he won the Copa Mercosur and the Brazilian title with Vasco. And he won the Brazilian and the South American Football of the Year awards that season as well. So very successful return. But he wasn't done. He, uh, he moved on to Fluminense uh, until 2004. And then he rejoined Vasco again. And this time he scored 22 goals in 30 games. And his final stint at Vasco da Gama came in 2007. Absolute quality he was, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, he was an incredible player. I mean, I've glossed over some of the some of the bits earlier in his yeah. career as well, but um, yeah, he was he was one of the best. Yeah, especially at international level as well. Yeah. Apparently, him and Edmundo didn't get on either. No, they fell out eventually. Well, massively got jealous of like everyone loving Romario and no one loving him. Oh, something I did forget to mention is that when they did win the um, the Mercosur Cup, in the final against Palmeiras, they were 3-0 down at half-time, and then Romario scored a hat-trick and they won 4-3. <laughs> wow. Great fight-backs. We should have had that nice fight-backs <laughs> one. Yeah. That was a good pick. I like that one. Right, so we are on to number two. So I guess it's... Yeah, my two's already gone, mate. Oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, must be me, then. Right, I've gone with Nemanja Matic at Chelsea. Mm, okay. 
so obviously he um his first spell at Chelsea he wasn't played very much by Ancelotti um I think mainly because he arrived with an injury or whatever he failed to make much of an impact so he, he got he got shipped off so off he went to um he went out on loan various times and then Benfica snapped him up and he had a fairly successful time at Benfica um, mainly because they sold Axel Witzel to um, Zenit St. Petersburg and Garcia to Manchester City and uh, Matic kind of changed the way he plays a little bit so he, he began to sort of become a bit more of a defensive midfielder and um, he, had, he had a great season with Benfica and it prompted Chelsea to buy him back again and um, he ended up he ended up coming back to Chelsea in 2014, and his full debut was against the soon-to-be champions Manchester City. Uh, he instantly made his 25 million transfer fee look like a bargain. He gave a commanding performance in a typical Mourinho masterclass victory at, at the Etihad. He started to shut out the likes of the Chelsea regulars of John Obi, Mikel, and Ramirez, and he created a partnership with uh, summer signing Seth Fabregas which obviously saw Chelsea develop a very Mourinho-esque midfield, shall we say. Um, and the pair became untouchable in the starting lineup as Matic's attributes as an engine in midfield complemented Fabregas's playmaking capabilities. This led Chelsea to a dominant Premier League title in 2015. Obviously, I spoke about that in a uh, previous one earlier. And it earned Matic a place in the PFA Team of the Year. Admittedly, the following season wasn't so great because Mourinho got sacked um, after Chelsea had a bit of a stuttering start. Um, but he became an important player for Gus Hiddink and Mourinho's permanent successor, Conte. He was once again a key part of the Premier League title-winning side that season, this time linking up with N'Golo Kante in the middle. And he was so good, this is a bit weird, but he was so good for Chelsea that they decided to cash in on him. And so they sold him to Manchester United for £40 million. But I just thought from going from kind of like a flop to then coming back again, admittedly they bought him back at quite a high price. He won two titles on his return. I thought it justified being high up my list. Yeah, can't really argue with that one, I think. Yeah, I considered it. It was it was very close to making my list. I thought that Chelsea really misused him the first time they had him at the club. It was, it was always a good player. But um, yeah, you can't argue with what he achieved when he returned. Right then, so number two, Dan. Yep, my, my number two is Vitor Bahia. Oh, yeah. Okay. You with me? Yep. <laughs> cool. I know the name. So he was a Portuguese goalkeeper. Uh, started off with Porto in 1988, and he won five league titles, two domestic cups, and was voted the Portuguese Football of the Year in 1989 and 1991. Uh, eventually, after 246 appearances for Porto, he moved on to Barcelona in 1996, and he was the most expensive goalkeeper in the world at the time when he transferred. He uh, won the Cup Winners' Cup with Barcelona, but then he, he lost his place the following season because Louis van Gaal took charge, and he favoured his fellow countryman, Rude Hesp, instead. Fancy that, eh? A Dutchman signing a load of Dutch players for Barcelona. That never happens, mate. Vitor Bahia was actually sidelined with a knee injury for the most part of the next season as he required surgery. 
and then he was released by Barcelona after that. And he rejoined Porto in 1999. Uh, returned to his best form in the 2002-2003 season, he helped Porto win a domestic league and cup double, as well as the UEFA Cup, where he saved penalties in the semi-final and the final. And then the following season, uh, Porto won the domestic league and also the Champions League with Bayer being voted the best goalkeeper in Europe. I uh, carried on playing with them until 2007, making a further 160 domestic appearances for Porto. And by the end of his career, he'd won a staggering 30 trophies over the course of it. And he's one of the most decorated footballers of all time. I didn't, I didn't have that one on my list at all. That's, That's a, good a very point. good find. Very good find, mate. Yeah, I think the, the UEFA Cup and the Champions League with Porto, that, that's why it had to be high on my list. Got a point to prove, didn't he? To be honest. so He did. It, it took him a little bit of time as well because um, he rejoined in 99 and it, it took a bit of time for him to get back to his best. But then he, um, he just carried on going. Okay. Chris, Mark Hughes at number one, I believe. Yep, it sure is. Okay, so, so he was signed back to Manchester United in 1988. Before that, he was actually on loan to Bayern Munich, but he struggled to settle in. And he was actually owned at that time by Barcelona, who um, sold him for 1.8 million. At the beginning, uh, Man United struggled in the league. They were drawing too many games despite um, Sparky's immense contribution. His, his reward, however, was the PFA Player of the Year of eight, from 88 to 89. United continued to struggle in the league over the following season and were again chasing success in the Cups. Hughes picked up his second FA Cup winner's medal in a 1-0 replay against Palace after that fantastic 3 all game. As a result, United entered the, the European Cup Winners' Cup as now English clubs return to Europe after their five-year exile. Having scored in the semi-final, Sparky demonstrated his taste for the big occasion with both goals in a 2-1 win against Barcelona. And they also reached the League Cup final that year, losing to Sheffield Wednesday 1-0. Hughes had his best scoring season with 21 goals in all competition in all competitions he was again voted fa player of the year in 1991 man united just missed out on the title to leeds but united won the league cup with a 1-0 victory over forest the following season hughes had a new strike partner a certain mr eric Cantona, and the, the pair combined to fire the Red Devils to the first league championship for 26 years. The next year, Man United won their second title in a row and, and Hughes scored in the Rumbelows Cup final. But they actually lost that 3 1 to Aston Villa. <laughs> oh, the Rumbelows Cup. Yeah. You can't beat that. You can't beat that. I had to keep a straight face saying that. <laughs> yeah, like you did. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and in the FA Cup semi-final against Oldham, Hughes scored a last-minute equaliser, which prompted a replay, which they won and eventually won the final 4-0 against Chelsea, which he scored in. 
His four, final season at Man U led to disappointment, though. He lost in the FA Cup to Everton and in the last seconds to Blackburn in the league. In seven seasons, he made 372 appearances, scoring 116 times. He then moved to Chelsea for £1.5 million that summer. You pretty much covered what I had. I don't know if Dan's got anything to add. Um, well, I thought you covered it really well, Chris. The only, the only other bit I can add is um, when he, he left Man United and joined Barcelona, it was for £2 million. And, um, same season that Gary Lineker arrived, where Lineker was hailed a success and Hughes was a failure. And um, apparently Ferguson wanted to bring him back straight away after he took charge of United. And the, the move was on the table from November of 86, so shortly after he joined Barcelona. But um, it was actually delayed until April of 1988 because um, if Hughes had moved back any sooner, he would have been liable for loads of tax on earnings overseas. <laughs> oh, really? Is that the reason why I went to buy <laughs> yeah. in then? Yeah, yeah. So that sort of stalled yeah. the move. <laughs> I'm fancy now he's a Bradford City manager. Yeah. <laughs> the old game. When you put it in context, he, he helped them get their first league title for 25 years. Hadn't quite dawned on me. So definitely see why I was so high on your list. Yeah, it's a good one. do my number one which is chris's number three i believe yep. and then we'll find out which weird wonderful pick dan's got number one i'm quite looking forward to that <laughs> <laughs> so my number one chris's number five is santi cazola um obviously he started out his career at villarreal um he had a brief spell with uh, recreativo he then went back to villarreal before going to malaga and obviously going on to arsenal it was uh, towards the end of his Arsenal career that he suffered an injury in a 6-0 win over Ludogretz. Um, he didn't know at the time that that was going to be his last appearance for Arsenal. And he had, uh, I think it was about two years of painful surgeries and injury rehabilitation, during which time the doctors basically had to take skin from his arm to stop his foot from being amputated. Um, and it, it just it seemed certain that Cazorla would never kick a ball again when he when he left uh, when he left Arsenal, and he didn't really get a chance to say goodbye to them either. And apparently the doctor said to him, "If you ever get to walk with your son in the garden, be satisfied." And then he he kind of he got over the worst of his injuries and he was able to run again, but he was still miles off being match fit. And um, most clubs didn't want to take a chance on a 33-year-old who was injury-prone. But then Villarreal came calling for him. I don't know if you remember the uh, the homecoming unveiling that he had. Yeah. The big cylinder tube on the pitch filled with smoke, and you could quite clearly see him like, crouch down in it. And yeah. the, smoke, the smoke lifted, and uh, there's Cazorla. <laughs> So uh, yeah, it was it was back after 
after seven years and there was no one thought he was going to do anything because of his injuries but he made his first La Liga appearance um, in 2018 he, he couldn't prevent Villarreal from losing but he carried on playing he played well for 72 minutes and um, he actually seemed to be in quite good shape unfortunately the team didn't seem to be in very good shape they won three of their first 15 league games that season and the manager was sacked and Villarreal were worryingly close to relegation. Although they progressed to the knockout rounds of the Europa League, new signings Gerard Moreno and uh, Ramiro Funes Mori had failed to really hit the ground running. Anyway, the new manager came in, uh, Luis Garcia Plaza. Um, he failed to win any of his six La Liga games in charge. And um, it was in this sort of short period that Cazorla was, people realised that he was, he was kind of, he was back. And shortly before New Year, Villarreal hosted Real Madrid. There was no optimism because obviously Real Madrid were European champions. However, Villarreal gained an unexpected point in a two-all draw. Cazorla scored both goals. And this seemed to like spring him into action even more. And um, yeah, so they started to pick up some results. They had a little bit of a wobble when they lost to Celta Vigo. But then Gazzola put on a masterclass because they were 2-0 down to um, Barcelona and 20 minutes to go. And it looked like Villarreal were going to get relegated. But Villarreal's hit four goals before the 80th minute. It looked like a famous win was going to be on the cards. But obviously, unfortunately, again, the hearts were broken by yet another late collapse when Messi popped up with an outstanding free kick in the 93rd minute. And then Suarez equalised with a weak volley to stun everyone. No one thought we could get any worse um, until the next game, which was away at Real Betis. And um, Villarreal found themselves 2-1 down. And they had a penalty in the 90th minute. And uh, upstep Cazorla to take it. But unfortunately, he missed. He sent the ball right down the middle. And um, you know Villarreal lost and the spirits got even lower. Cazorla was devastated and it was like after all these sort of top class performances to drag Villarreal through the uh, games before it it was then him who missed and it it just seemed to suck the energy out of him but they had seven games left to save their top flight status and uh, even Cazorla I mean I don't know if you remember him when he was at Arsenal he was constantly smile on his face even he looked down and out and everyone just assumed that Villarreal were going to crumble and um disappear into the second division but something snapped them back into life after that after that result and three wins in a row followed because uh, all assisted the winning goal in two of these victories i think it just showed them that like the mental resilience that he had to not only overcome his injuries but to overcome this dreadful penalty miss and obviously they managed to survive and he ended that first season back with seven goals and 11 assists in 46 games then his final season, he um, he absolutely smashed it. I think he he finished he finished with seventeen goals and thirteen assists. Also, with him linking up with Gerard Moreno, helped him spark to life a bit. And um, this was all during COVID, by the way. And he also got they 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 ended up having quite a good season. I think they got to the Europa League final that season. Was that the year they won it? No, it was the year after. I think, but. Yeah, I just the, the reason he's he's the, get me words out in a minute. Him overcoming his 
injury problems and the penalty miss and then going on to have an absolutely storming season the year after is why I've put him in number one. It was a long-winded story, but I got there in the end. No, it's well worth it. Incredible mental strength. I'm Just sure Chris can, going. Chris can add some bits to it. To be honest, mate, you about nailed it. Because <laughs> that's exactly the, what I was going to say, to be fair. Except for he did get his guard of honour at Arsenal, didn't he? Went back yes, and became yeah, a guard yeah, of honour. Yeah, yeah. Um, but incredible. Like People just didn't think he was ever going to even walk again, did they? With no. the amount of surgery he had. Let alone play professional football and then to a high level. <laughs> incredible. Yeah, really enjoyed that. Thank you very much. El Villarreal encuentra bien a Pablo Fornal, se puede pegar y buscaba filtrar ese balón, pero había demasiadas piernas ahí de jugadores del oh. Almería, madre mía, Santi Cazorla, pero qué golazo acaba de marcar Santi Cazorla, aplaude los Juegos del Mediterráneo. La... Go on then, Dan. What's your number one? Right, so my number one, I've gone for Alan Boxick. Oh, okay. Okay. Lazio, would it be? Indeed. Yeah. But um, I'll start from the very beginning. So he played for Hajduk Split and scored 60 goals in 174 games, winning the Yugoslav Cup in 87 and 91. Uh, he scored the winning goal in the 91 Cup final against Red Star Belgrade, and that was the last one before the country dissolved, which I've touched on on a previous podcast. Uh, he moved to French Giants Marseille in 92, and he was the league and top goal scorer as he helped them win the league title, although they were later stripped of the title. Um, he helped them win the Champions League and was voted fourth in the Ballon d'Or at the end of the season. But uh, because of the match-fixing scandal, he, he left the club and he moved on to Lazio. And he formed an attacking partnership with uh, Signori and Casiraghi, and he helped Lazio to a second-place finish. And then in 1996, he was actually signed by Juventus. So he only played one season with Juventus, though. Uh, but he did win the Serie A title, and he provided an assist in the, uh, the Champions League final where they lost uh, 3-1 to Borussia Dortmund. Uh, but the following season, he returned to Lazio. And in his first season back, he scored 10 goals and he helped them win the Coppa Italia and they reached the UEFA Cup final. And the following season, uh, it wasn't a good one for Boxic. He was plagued by injuries, but he did manage six appearances along the way to Lazio winning the Cup Winners' Cup in the 98-99 season. And in 1999-2000, Lazio won the UEFA Super Cup. They won another Coppa Italia. And Boxic made 19 league appearances as Lazio won only their second Serie A title in the club's history. So that was the main reason why I put that in, in such a strong league, but so competitive. And he's he's gone back and helped Lazio win the Serie A, which is just incredible. Yeah, yeah, definitely had and something then, to prove as well, didn't he? After what happened at Marseille. Well, I don't I don't think he felt guilty to be honest, but. Um, as in, with all the drug st- scandal and everything, just to prove that he can do it in other leagues, I guess, as well. Yeah, he did. And um, Lazio just seemed to be so good in the cup competitions. It was yeah. amazing, really. And then the That's reward for all that is finishing his career at Middlesbrough. 
Did he play with Janino? I think he did, didn't he? Must have done. Yeah, that's a that's a good one, though, mate. Right, good list. Cheers, gentlemen. Have we got any special mentions? Yes, I do. Uh, I've got two. First one is Vinnie Jones. Okay, I don't remember him going back anywhere. Where did he go? Uh, he left Wimbledon. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Um, in 1989, he joined Leeds and helped them win the second division title. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. And then he moved on to Sheffield United, then Chelsea. Then in 1992, he returned to Wimbledon and made a further 200 appearances for them. Oh, yeah. Okay. And um, they finished sixth and eighth along the way in the in the 90s after his return. And then my other honourable mention was Colin Hendry, who uh, went back to Blackburn and won a Premier League title. Yeah, fair enough. Another good one. Yep, Chris. I found Stevie Staunton. He's a double double. <laughs> Aston Villa and Le- and uh, Liverpool. I don't remember his second Liverpool spell being much to write home about. No, that's why I left it out. <laughs> um, Flamini, a similar thing to Skulls. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I, I looked. This one came out an, an old folklore name, Billy Meredith. Oh, yeah, he was one of my the special cheat. mentions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the cheat himself. Yeah, and that's about it, really, for me. I had Billy Meredith, um, Thierry Henry. He came up for four games and scored two important goals and then left again. And um, who else did I have? Um, Claudio Pizarro, who had about 20 spells at Verde Bremen. Yeah. <laughs> Got some socials if you want me to give you them as well. Yeah, go on then. Let's, let's hear them. Okay, the first one is Vinnie Ferguson. He's a Partick Fistle fan, so his was uh, Chick Charnley. And I looked him up and he played for Partick three times on three separate occasions. Then we had Matt, who did the first ever episode of VAR at the bar. He oh, said, he is, he is. Will Saha. Okay. Obviously Palace. Um Stuart um Ewood Blue. He said Colin Henry. Um from the Stuart Owl pod, Stu said Drogba. Um for the love of lists, Zaha. Um John Bleed um sorry, Bleeddale. He said Russell Anderson at Aberdeen. And then we got Stephen Graham, but not of the famous, but um, <laughs> he he put a couple of joke ones, Pogba and Bosnich. Thought I'd give him a shout out anyway. He put them out there. Well, we and, may well do another list yet. Yeah. The ones. <laughs> yeah. And finally, eighties and nineties football. He said Peter Beardsley and Martin Keown. Thank nice. you, everyone, for for putting the the number ones on. Buon pomeriggio, siete collegati in diretta con lo Stadio Olimpico di Roma, derby capitolino di Coppa Italia. Boxic, Candelà, poi gli porta via la palla a Mancini, poi in genuo Candelà, Boxic ha la grande chance e la Lazio è in vantaggio. Un minuto e 50 secondi, la Lazio in vantaggio con Allen Boxic, ancora lui a segno negli ultimi tre turni di campionato, Boxic colpisce. 
Right then. Good, the bad, the obscure. A late substitution. <laughs> Is it a goalkeeper? No. Oh. <laughs> no. I didn't have time to research goalkeepers. God. <laughs> have you heard of a player called Ronnie O'Brien? Nope. No. No, you probably won't. He's quite nondescript. But yeah, he comes with a funny story. So he was um he was part of well, he was born born in nineteen seventy nine and he became a part of the uh prestigious island youth setup they had, which included the likes of Robbie Keane, Richard Dunn, Stephen McPhail, uh went on to win the under eighteen European Championship in nineteen ninety eight. Uh he was at the time a Middlesbrough player, but he failed to break into the first team and he was released in nineteen ninety nine. And this was when his career took a bit of a bizarre twist because normally when you leave Borough, again, I feel like I'm picking on Borough tonight, I'm not. <laughs> You'd expect to go to like a, a slightly lower league club or something. But Paul Merson's agent, see Paul Merson was at Borough at the time, his agent asked him if there was anyone worth taking a look at. And um, Merson mentioned this O'Brien kid and... Uh, Merson's agent happened to be the uh, UK agent for Juventus. So they watched uh, they watched a video of him playing in the reserves and they were convinced. So uh, off O'Brien went to Juventus, um, signed by a certain um, Carlo Ancelotti. And he was made to feel part of the first team. And he was put in a hotel room with club captain Antonio Conte at the time. And he was even on he was even on the Juve's preseason poster alongside Zidane and uh, Chiaro Ferrara. But Brian Robson wasn't having any of this. He said he's not good enough. People are jumping at the ceiling because he's gone to Juventus, but he hasn't done anything. And unfortunately, Robson's verdict would prove to be pretty accurate. But this didn't stop O'Brien from becoming something of a cult status back in Ireland. Like the idea that this like young young Irish lad was well out of his depth at one of the biggest clubs in the world was quite endearing. If and also perhaps a little bit inspiring. And he said at the time, it's an unbelievable experience, even if nothing comes of it. I've learned a hell of a lot. It's a dream come true. Um ultimately his only um I think his only appearances for Juventus were a handful of Intertoto Cup ones. But he did become the third Irishman to wear, obviously, the famous black and white kit following Matthew Kunding and Liam Brady. Anyway, it gets a bit weirder because around about this is around about the time that we we're approaching the um, millennium. And a lot of publications started compiling lists of all time greats. And there was uh, someone somewhere in an office, I think started up the greatest ever Irish players or greatest ever Juventus players or something. And uh, obviously Ronnie O'Brien got a mention and it became kind of a, almost like an early meme. His name just kept getting more and more likes and <laughs> people get landed the lists. And um, he ended up being on the list of the Time magazine's person of the century which was open to um, a public public opinion. 
and it just became this national campaign hundreds of thousands of irish men and women voted for him their very own man in turin as the person of the century uh, unfortunately time magazine said no we're not having any of this um and they reinforced a rule that whimsical candidates will not be counted but albert einstein <laughs> eventually won the won the prize from the time person of the century with uh, franklin d roosevelt and mahatma gandhi as runners-up uh, pretty big names to be linked with but um then in the early noughties the american football was having a bit of a resurgence the usa strong showing in the 2002 world cup and o'brien joined in the fun he joined dallas burn and he played there for four years and he'd last played for dundee united when he left uh, juventus and he just said that uh, the heat was ridiculous that was the main the main culture shock it's so hot here um it's a really really hard job to play football in america and he started the 2003 season with much promise which but it was unfortunately cut short with an injury when he got uh, recklessly taken out in the game against dc united he ended up being out for the rest of the season and during that time he contemplated retirement uh, he, he ended up playing with a metal rod in his leg and he knew he had more to give to his to his stop start career and he was now in his mid-20s and he started to show some potential that paul merson recognized um back in the day at middlesbrough and he became dallas's talisman the following season finishing with 10 assists and he was named the mls named in the mls best 11 of 2004 and he was at it again the following year um despite his form he always felt a bit ignored by uh, the irish international setup steve staunton did try and call him up in 2007 but he rejected him stating that he wanted to concentrate on his club football he went on to play for toronto and san jose earthquakes um he ended up returning to dallas after his retirement in 2009 because he said he'd fallen in love with it and he was an adopted texan and uh yeah that, that's it really i just thought it was worth a mention because not many unknown footballers make a list of the time people of the century wow <laughs> that's a really good obscure one that is <laughs> well worth the wait <laughs> no definitely looking for some help backside o'brien and he drives it off the backside of the defender what a great look by huckerby here's o'brien ronnie o'brien out front oh! Okay, should we do a quiz? Yes. Right. Go on then. Right, seven questions. Okay. I said I'd keep it short. Are we all ready? Yeah. Okay. Right, I'm going to name you um, eight teams. Okay. And I want you to tell me the three that have been relegated from the Premier League three or more times. Okay. And... You can have a point for each. Each. Okay. Bradford. Coventry. Derby. Middlesbrough. QPR. Swindon. West Brom. And Wigan. Is it a shouty out one or are we going to go one each? 
Oh, yeah. Um, tell me your answers, like individually, and yeah. then I'll award the points. Well, okay. Do you want me to go first? Go on then, Dan. What's your three? I've gone for West Brom. Yep. QPR. Yep. Middlesbrough. Okay. Chris? I've gone, I've gone West Brom, Middlesbrough, Derby. Uh, okay. All right. I can reveal one of you have got three points and one of you has two points. Do you want a stick or twist? What does that mean? Well, I'm giving, I'm giving you the opportunity to change one. No, I'm, I'm going to stick with mine. Right. I'm going to stick. Okay. Dan, you have three points. Chris, ah. you've got two points. <laughs> it was West Brom, QPR, and Borough. Okay. Right. My second question, and this is solely for Chris at the moment. Dan, you'll get your turn in a minute. Okay. So you can have a Liverpool question for one point. You can have a Leicester question for two points, or you can have a completely random question for three points. Go with the three points, mate. Okay. Um, and let me just keep track of the scores here. <laughs> right, random question for three points. Which country has appeared in three World Cup finals but never won it? All right, so the final itself, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Holland. Well done. Three points to Chris. Okay, Dan. You might know where this is going. One point for Leicester question. Two points for Liverpool question. Or three points for random question. Uh, I'll go for a Liverpool question. Who scored Liverpool's second goal in the Istanbul comeback in 2005? Was it Vladimir Smitsa? It was indeed. Well done. Great shout. Okay, we're tied at three all. Uh, five all, sorry. Okay, question three. Which country... Oh, sorry, fingers on the buzzers. Which country is Sheriff Tiraspol from? Moldova? Yeah, point to Dan. Well done, Dan. All right, question four is the one and only gamble question. How many of the 12 British clubs can you name that have played in the Champions League group stage since 1992? And as Chris is losing, he gets first pick. How many you say? 12? 12. 12. British clubs. I'll go with seven then. Okay. Dan, any advances on seven? I've got to go eight. Okay. Uh, nine. Okay. Ten. Eleven. Oh. <laughs> Can you do 12, Dan? You can let Chris have a crack. Oh, go on then, Chris. <clears throat> go on then, Chris. Okay. Liverpool. Yes. Spurs. Yes. Chelsea. Yes. 
Man City. Yes. Man United. Yes. Leeds. Yes. Celtic. Yes. Rangers. Yes. Newcastle. Yes. Leicester City. Yes. Arsenal. Yes. I've got one more. Are you done 11? I've lost count. <laughs> Yeah, done eleven. Oh, yeah, you said eleven. Yeah, well done. Oh, you missed off Blackburn. I did. But no, well done. It's, uh, six all. Don't make me do a tiebreaker tonight, please. <laughs> <laughs> Question five: Fingers on the buzzers. Who were the only newly promoted team to win on the opening day of this season in the Premier League? Bournemouth. Well done to Chris. Beat Villa. All right, question six, fingers on the buzzers. Which country did the Lincoln Red Imps come from? Uh, Jersey. No. Gibraltar. Gibraltar. Oh, oh, I think Dan just edged yeah, it there. Yeah, just beat me to it. Okay. All right, seven all. Final question. It's a... Well, it's a take it and turn, shout it out one. Can you name the five teams to only win the FA Cup once since 1990? I'll come to Dan first. Pick one. Leicester City. Yep. Point to Dan. Chris? Wigan. Yep. Portsmouth. Yep. Everton. Yeah. Now, it's whoever whoever shouts it out wins wins the whole thing. <laughs> um, from nineteen ninety, did you say, mate? Sorry. Yeah, nineteen ninety. Chef Wednesday. No. Manchester City. No. Spurs. Well done. Chris is tonight's winner. Ten points to nine. You're still well, top. You're still top. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yay. All right, there we go. The the uh the return is complete. So any anything from you two? Um, I think we can um, announce what list we're doing for the next pod, can't we? Okay. Okay. Top ten worst returns to former clubs. Oh, okay. Right. Okay. Going straight back in. Okay. No problem. No problem. Just Sounds well to me like working on it. <laughs> Sounds Maybe. to me like Dan's already started that one. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So as always, get your socials in. Yeah, we're on Twitter, VAR at the bar 2022. Any requests or anything like that, just tweet us. Right then, well, thanks for listening and hopefully it won't be a year before we uh, do this again. All right, sincerely hope not. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, goodbye for me. See you next time. See you in a bit.
This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network.